amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hi, it's Julia Hartley Brewer here, and I can't wait to join Brendan O'Neill for a special live recording of his podcast. And you can be there too. It's on Wednesday, 22nd of September at 7pm. Tickets cost just £5, or if you're a Spipe supporter, you can get your ticket for free. So get your tickets now before they're all gone. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash events to find out more. Once you begin to self-censor, it becomes something you internalize. Slowly but surely, you begin to use a language that was originally alien to you, but you now say it almost inadvertently. And after a couple of years, you know, you don't have to worry about saying it inadvertently. It becomes who you really are. It becomes you. So I think in that sense, some of these re-education programs are much more successful than the kind of re-education programs that the, that the Maoist Chinese used to put young people through because that was far too unsubtle. This is a much more subtle cultural process that often goes by unnoticed. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a weekly podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Frank Ferradi. Frank is a sociologist, commentator and prolific author. He is a frequent contributor to Spiked and has also written for numerous other publications around the world. He is Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent, and one of his main areas of expertise is the culture of fear, which he has written about extensively over the past three decades. Frank's books include Culture of Fear, Risk-Taking and the Morality of Low Expectations, Paranoid Parenting, Abandon Your Anxieties and Be a Good Parent, On Tolerance, A Defense of Moral Independence, and many more. His latest book, published this week, is 100 Years of Identity Crisis, The Culture War Over Socialization. So, Frank, let's talk about your new book, 100 Years of Identity Crisis, The Culture War Over Socialization. And uh, it's a very timely publication because identity is the issue of our time. It's been talked about more than I can remember at any time in my lifetime. It is center stage in so many public discussions. So I want to kick off just by asking you quite a simple question, which is why you think there is this preoccupation with identity at the moment? Well, to make a long story short, you know, that was the question I began with, trying to understand, because uh, when I was uh, a teenager, nobody talked about identities. And, you know, the only time that anybody talked about identities was basically when you had an identity paper of some sort. (laughs) I went back and I tried to understand where this whole idea and problem comes from. And I began to realize that the reason why we have acquired such a obsessive uh, focus on identity is because something that began a century ago gradually began to gain greater and greater momentum. And what began a century ago was basically to change the way that young people were socialized, were brought up, 
both by their teachers but by, and by their parents. And the change was basically one which represented a shift from transmitting the values of your parents, your grandparents, your community to a child. That's what socialization used to mean. To one, where socialization began to be almost the very opposite, where particularly in schools, children were told that the values of the past are rubbish, that the values of your parents are out of date, and instead will give you this new way of looking at the world. Mm. I think that created a lot of confusion. And in particular, uh, it, it made matters worse when about 40, 50 years ago, not only did children uh, were told not to uh, take their values of their parents seriously, they were also not given very much values to embrace. They weren't really told what is right and what is wrong. Teachers were saying there's no such thing as right and wrong. You can more or less do whatever you feel like. And instead, they were becoming psychologically validated. They were told mm. what was important, that their self-esteem should be high, they should be praised, they should be supported. So when this begins to happen, what happens is that a lot of young people become detached from anything. They become completely isolated and estranged from what has gone on beforehand. And I think under those circumstances, instead of resolving their normal search for an identity, which has gone on for some time, they're left with very little. So when they're 17, 18, or 19, a crisis of identity begins to be almost unresolvable. And I think it's at this point that they begin to become very obsessed with the meaning of identity. I just want to add one more point to it, because when you become obsessed with your identity, that doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to have uh, a big cultural uh, uh, aspect to it. But what happens is that at a certain point in the 60s and the 70s, this obsessiveness of what identity became to be politicized. And I think what happens is that the problem of identity mutates into the politics of identity. And that's really what we are blessed with now. It, that is really uh, the zeitgeist of our time. And that happened relatively recently in historical terms. But we don't remember that, in fact, we used to live in a world where these issues were very much on the margins of society. And nobody, no politician, would get up and start a meeting by saying, speaking as a woman, speaking as a gay person, speaking as as a trans person. They would say, speaking as a socialist, speaking as a liberal, speaking as a conservative. So that's a huge change, which begins, as I argue, very, very early on in young people's lives. I want to dig down a little bit more into the crisis of socialization or the shifts that took place in socialization over the past century, as you write about in the book. But first, I want to talk a bit more about the current moment and maybe work our way backwards to to understand the origins of what we're currently living through. So one of the things that you note very well, I think, in the book is that the current identity play, the current search for an identity, the current attempt to almost invent one's own identity, it very often is presented as a positive thing, something that's driven by choice, an empowering thing. You know, if you log on to Instagram, for example, you're now asked, what pronouns do you want to use? What gender do you want to be? And you kind of construct almost out of Lego uh, your own identity, your own gender, your own, uh, even your own racial categorization, all these things you can kind of play around with. And it's presented in this people taking control of who they are and how they present to the world. But what you note in the book, which I think is very true, is that 
behind that facade, actually, it can be a very dislocated process. And it can be one that is driven more by a sense of uncertainty and fragility rather than by any kind of confidence. So for example, if we look at the phrase, I identify as, I mean, it it feels quite contingent, it feels quite weak, you know, the suggestion, the implication is I identify as this today, I might be something else tomorrow, you have to listen to me. So how, how do you explain that phenomenon that what appears or what is presented by some people as a seizing of control of one's identity actually speaks to a loss of identity and an inability to construct one that makes sense. I think the process you're describing is what I see very much as an acquiescence to uh, a loss of control, where your loss of control, your loss of agency over the world is turned into a very kind of positive Hmm. dimension of your life. See, the interesting thing is that if you read virtually anybody that uh, explored the problem of identity in psychology or in philosophy in previous times, across the political divide, the one thing they were very certain about is that the way you begin to know who you are, the way you gain strength and, and not even have to think about your identity, is really when uh, you're able to achieve something. It's through your work and through your activity that you acquire this kind of dynamic uh, sort of uh, active element of an identity, which means that if, you know, if I look at you, you don't have to say, I identify as. People know mm-hmm. that you, Brendan O'Neill, you know, sort of have written this and that, you know, sort of on spy. They know that Brendan O'Neill uh, is somebody that gives fairly eloquent and persuasive speeches. They don't have to, you know, sort of uh, look into your soul <laughs> and kind of look into these intangible, psychological, emotional uh, sort of features of your life, which are very, they're like a bar of soap, and you, mm. the minute you, you know, sort of uh, uh, kind of put in your hands, they kind of slip away. And I think that what happened is that as people lost their connection with achievement, uh, when people's sense of action and their active side wasn't taken too seriously, then under those circumstances, they had to find a way of giving uh, I identify as some kind of positive, you know, sort of connotation. And basically what they've done is they infantilize adulthood by, by literally saying that like a child, you know, who dresses up and says, I'm Napoleon, or who dresses up and says, I'm Queen Elizabeth. So too, you can dress up metaphorically, if not always physically, and determine and declare, this is what I am. If you're anything like me, you probably don't have time for mindless scrolling on the internet for hours. Sometimes you need some serious brain food. You need to watch or listen to something that is going to teach you something new. That's why I've been loving Wondrium. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. Wondrium is a streaming service I can't get enough of. Wondrium offers endless opportunities to learn something new with thousands of hours of top quality video and audio content. It has fascinating documentaries, helpful how-to guides and answers to every question you've ever had. And if you're familiar with The Great Courses Plus, then you already know Wondrium. It's the same great service, now bigger and better. You're going to love it. Lately, I've been really getting into Wondrium's series on the Industrial Revolution. You'll learn all about the inventors, the businessmen, and the ordinary workers that gave birth to our incredible modern world. 
I know you'll love Wondrium, so I put together a special offer for my listeners. You can get a free month trial of unlimited access. Just go to my special URL, wondrium.com slash Brendan. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Brendan. Think of how much you could learn in one month. Go to wondrium.com slash Brendan. Another thing that you comment on in the book is there is this, and this is something I've struggled with when I've been thinking about the politics of identity recently, which is that there is a there's a coexistence of a fluidity of identity with a fossilization of identity. So on the one hand, identity is presented as a very fluid thing. I mean, even the term gender fluidity, for example, suggests a complete erasure of traditional borders between the sexes and this idea that you can slip and slide between any gender. You, can, you know, there are some genders now which where you, your gender is shaped by your own surroundings. So it's so fluid that your gender can change depending on what room you enter or what group of people you are with. Um, I think that one's called aerogender. Uh, but then alongside that kind of fluidity, which as you've just described, often springs from a broader confusion about who one is, there is also the fossilization of identity. So some identity groups will sometimes quite defensively say, our identity is set in stone. It is biologically given to us. It is unchangeable. I mean, the clearest example of that is in the gay rights movement, this kind of defensive adoption of the idea that we're born this way, it's not our choice, don't oppress us, we can't help it, which is uh, quite a defensive shift from the more liberationary approach of the 1960s. So uh, do you see those things as contradictory or do you think that fluidity combined with fossilization? do you think it comes from a similar origin of a, a broader confusion about who we are in the in 21st century? Well, I think there is a, a, an important chronological historical element in this, because in the 1960s and 1970s, the issue of choice, which is a a positive uh, sort of aspiration that I fully support, Mm. sort of gradually mutated into something very different. So it wasn't even a choice, but it was fluidity that was uh, held up. Now, when you talk about fluidity, you know, it's no longer a question of choice because things are fluid regardless of, of not whether or not you, you make a, a choice to be something a little bit different. Fluidity actually has this premise of things just occurring because fluidity is what defines our times. And in fact, uh, one sociologist, Bauman, actually wrote a book called Liquid Modernity and the metaphor of, of a liquid life, uh, which some people uh, sort of see as being always oh, so fluid and not, not everything is changing, can actually be interpreted as one where we're really not in control of anything. It's a kind of a fatalistic element in there. And I think that as long as things are unstated and they can, they can be something else tomorrow, it cannot but provide you with an element of insecurity, an element of anxiety, where it's very difficult to relax in your identity as a gay person or your identity as trans person or whatever identity you've kind of decided to opt for. And I think when that uh, begins to prey on the back of your mind, both individually and collectively, then people begin to want to find some kind of more grounded way of expressing your identity. And I think the what I call the fossilization of identity, the attempt to basically say, we were born this way, this is our biology, 
there is a gay gene or you know some of us we didn't choose to be trans this is this is our destiny almost you know sort of then begins to acquire a greater and greater momentum and once you equate identity with destiny which is the the moment we're in at the moment then of course it becomes an entirely fatalistic accomplishment formally contradicting the earlier liquid phrase but at the same time it only formally contradicts it because the two in a sense evolve from one another and reinforce each other uh, in practice even today in relation to the search for identity or the or the often the very self-conscious invention of identity i and others tend to write very critically about the politics of identity and the destructive impact that it can have on public life and on personal life as well and i want to talk to you in a moment about the tensions of personal and public when we have this kind of new new kind of politics but can we say that there is a positive dynamic to the attempt to create an identity even if it's very often misfired even if it ends up in a problematic situation and people end up feeling increased forms of anguish because the identity is never really satisfactory but you write in the book that the reason identity has become a central theme in our society is because it provides a cultural framework through which people can define themselves as individuals and also part of wider social constituencies so it's a, it's an attempt firstly to define the self at a time when that can be a difficult thing to do but also to create a sense of belonging when older senses of belonging seem to have become more corroded so is that how you understand the dynamic of the current preoccupation with identity politics it's not that the kind of identitarians have smashed down the doors of the academy and politics and taken over but rather that it this politics springs from a corrosion of earlier bonds earlier ways of understanding one another and so now there's this sometimes quite desperate search to magic up new co- social constituencies that we might become members of i think in part that's very much the case because uh, the precondition for uh developing a, a kind of a, a focus on identity developing that sensibility where identity is everything is when you're not sure who you are when you're not sure uh where you stand in relation to the rest of society and i think that that occurs when for a variety of reasons you have a, an intense level of social fragmentation mm-hmm. but also in addition to that fragmentation you don't just simply have the old classical forms of alienation that philosophers talked about in the 19th century what you also have is a kind of an absence of uh, valuing some of the uh, sort of some of the facets of life that could minimize alienation and this would be solidarity you know a strong sense of solidarity where you know that people are watching your back when you know you can take things for granted or have always been very very important when you have a, a greater valuation of action uh than is at, at the case at the moment and in particular where work and a vocation has got far more greater importance than we have today so when you have a a world that we live in now for example where when you're 16 you're told there is no such thing as a job for life mm. and people are told that they should have a CV and change job every two or three years and people are told that you know sort of uh, by the time you're 30 you're going to have six or seven different careers then work and vocation along with solidarity do not provide you with the resources to give you that kind of identity 
much, or at least it's much more difficult. Obviously, our individuals who are wholeheartedly committed to something at a very early age, and the minority of people who, even if didn't know what they wanted when they were young, find some way of expressing themselves. And, you know, through your painting, through your writing, through the, you know, the, the things you've kind of crafted, you know, through your work as a, the pride you get as a plumber, or as a mechanic, or as a carpenter, you begin to know who you are. You don't need to kind of go out and dress up uh, and kind of perform identity. But by and large, I think it, when these conditions, you know, sort of become much weaker and, and when you acquiesce to them rather than to challenge them, actually when we get to the situation that we're faced with today. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point, the acquiescence to those kinds of conditions. Because one of the things that you explore in the book is the way in which some of the contemporary critics or some of the modern critics of identity politics or, or the commentators on the identity crisis, they will often point to the changeable nature of society as the driving force of identity crisis. So the, the flux of society, the fluidity, risk society, all these other ideas that have emerged in recent years to describe a society that is constantly shifting around, where nothing lasts for very long, where things uh, fritter away very quickly. In, in such a modernity, people find it very difficult to stabilise their identity or to understand who they are. But one of the points you make is that that is uh, often a good description of the circumstances we find ourselves in. But there's a broader problem, which is, and this is the thing I want to dig down a little bit more, which is that in order to have a stable identity, you don't just need a society that is fixed and never changing and stays the same forever. You also need clarity about the meaning of your life and the meaning of the society you live in. And it's really the absence of that meaning and the the absence of the uh, the, a kind of authoritative understanding of what our lives mean and, and how they play into a broader, meaningful society. That's the real problem here, isn't it? Rather than the fact we live in a changeable society. No, you're absolutely right. And, and one of the reasons why I went back almost 100 years mm. is to show that virtually every decade, the same argument was used that we live in a rapid world. Things have never changed as fast as possible. That's what they said in 1880. That's what they said in during the First World War and the interwar. I mean, always the world mm-hmm. is changing. And of course, that's true. Uh, but we, the way we look at it, it's, it's never been as rapid as now, which, of course, is very much a way of us uh, being a little bit uh, uh, one-sided in our interpretation of events. And what I argue is that it's not the rapidity of change. It's not the economic circumstances. It's none of these, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, kind of socioeconomic material factors that leads to the situation that we're in today. But the real problem is a cultural one, and it's a cultural one in the sense that if you lack a, a system of meaning through which you can interpret your, your uh, experience, and more importantly, if you're not aware of it and you don't struggle to kind of get involved in, in, in meaning work, where you kind of work at creating meaning, then what you fall back upon very much is yourself as an individual and in a sense, the only thing that matters under those circumstances is yourself. And you're trying to, in a sense, focus your world around this particular entity. And I think that what's really sad, I, I find, is that um, in the contemporary world, all the discussion of identity suffers from historical amnesia and, and doesn't really quite understand what is unique and special and you know, really distinct about the world we live in now as far as identity-related issues are concerned. 
So let's talk a little bit about how we got to this situation. And what is a, the, the part of your book I find found most interesting was that there is a lot of focus on the process of socialization, the breakdown of that process over the past century or so, or the transformation of that process, and also the area of adolescence and how the new understandings of adolescence and the approach of people to adolescence without having the anchor of meaning or the anchor of values transmitted from older generations, how that can transform adolescence into a fairly crisis-ridden period when you don't quite know how to become an adult or how to become an adult who, who means something in society. So let's just look at that transformation of socialization in a bit more detail and why you think that is so important. So one of the points you make is that, to simplify it to a certain extent, you, there has been a shift from a socialization which was concerned with transmitting the values and the knowledge of previous generations to the new generation as a way of giving people a sense of right and wrong, a sense of who they were, what society meant, what their roles in society might have been. And over time, over the past hundred years in particular, there's been a shift towards a socialization that is focused much more on psychological values a kind of scientific approach of understanding people's lives in a much more narrow way. So can you just give us a, an overview of how you think socialisa- socialization has changed and why you think that's particularly problematic? In the book, what I show is that adolescence was constructed or discovered in the late 19th century. And what's also interesting is that adolescence was discovered as a subject of study before adulthood. Mm. And even today, we don't have a very big literature on adulthood. That's a, that's a very interesting symptom of Western culture. And when adolescence was discovered, it was basically suggested by, by the early authors is that adolescence is a very important stage because on the one hand, these are very, it's a very special time uh, when they are un- incredibly creative. Much more, they, adolescents are more interesting, was argued, than adults are. You know, so they are like, the medium through which real change can kind of come about. But at the same time, it was argued that adolescents are very fragile, they're emotional, they're liable to kick out, they're they're liable to all kinds of problems. And it was suggested that the way you socialize adolescents is by, on the one hand, giving them respite, because the stage of adolescence basically extended childhood. So you're not a period where young men and young women who historically would go to work, you, you would not go to education. So education gets expanded in the early 20th century. So they got this time to be different than children, but they're not yet adults. And in the course of doing that, they're socialized into uh, a particular point of view, which suggests that actually you know, becoming adults is not a positive step forward, you know, because historically adulthood being grown up was seen as something we all want to be as children, but the adulthood was in some sense morally and socially inferior uh, to that of adolescence. Mm. And I think this was a very important uh, shift that begins to occur because then adolescents become a medium through which uh, uh, the advocates of this new process of socialization attempt to change the world. They become like the the army that is used. Now, what is very interesting about this, and this is something that I was surprised to discover in the course of research, is that this view 
of adolescence and socialization was actually supported for different reasons by both sides of the political divide. What's called the progressive movement in America supported it because they regarded adolescence as a, as a force that could break society away from the bad old days of the past and bring about a new uh, society of reform, a kind of semi-utopia. And everybody from new liberals to socialists to social democrats, they really bought into this. But it was also supported by sections of the technocratic capitalist class because they basically wanted to rid young people from the preju- what it says, the prejudices and the traditions of the old days and get them educated in what they call the skills you need for, uh, for that kind of economy. And I think what's interesting is that kind of invisible alliance between these two forces, between what's, what I call scientism and progressivism, although they were often interchangeable, in different shapes and in different forms, continues to the very present moment. On that very point, I want to ask you about the term you use in the book, which is moral engineering. And you also use the term social engineering, which you describe as an unhappy term in some ways, because it means different things to different people. But you talk about moral engineering as a way of encapsulating uh, what you've just described there, which is the treatment of adolescents in particular and young people more broadly as a group in society who could be morally re-engineered in a particular direction in order to bring about broader social transformation as it was understood by the moral engineers. Could you just explain why you use that term moral engineering, how important you think that was to this process you're describing? I think it was very important. In fact, I was going to call the book Moral Engineering, but Mm. nobody would have understood (laughs) what that meant. It's very important because uh, one of the things that occurs in socialization is an attempt to transmit a certain set of moral values that are taken for granted. But if you're doing the opposite, you're basically telling young people to, in a sense, to abandon and to distance themselves from the old moral values of their parents and their grandparents then what you've got to do is almost kind of re-engineer their ideals, the the way they look at it, by, in a sense, imparting to them a different way of looking at the world, almost like an alternative morality. But it's a morality that is very rarely called moral because one of the arguments that very often moral engineers use is is that we must get rid of morality because morality is religion, morality is bad. So... They would, uh, they would never describe themselves as moral engineers because they're really against it. So if you want to know what moral engineering is like, I think you can see it today in a much more striking form than ever before, where in a sense the school curriculum mm-hmm. is being re-engineered in such a way that young people are told to be ashamed to be white. Mm-hmm. Heterosexual boys are told that they got to watch their toxic masculinity. The kind of values that... You know, nobody even heard about 10 or 15 years ago, are imparted in classrooms as if they were like scientific facts. Mm. And in fact, what it's really doing is a, is a form of moral en- uh, engineering where young kids have their outlook re-engineered in accordance with the identity orientation and the cultural orientation of the people that run our education system. So is the problem with moral engineering that it, it actually takes people, or takes young people in particular, away from a moral universe and places them into one which is far more technical, far more technocratic, one in which 
they're seen as more manageable at a psychological level, at a medical level. So you talk about how one of the problem in the book, you talk about how one of the problems with moral engineering is that it has this tendency to transform moral questions into technical questions. So what would traditionally have involved judgment and authority and the transmission of ways of life to the next generation suddenly become far more technicalized. And it's about an expert intervention into how adolescents think, how they ought to behave. So is the problem with moral engineering that it rests us away from a world of morality and takes us into one in which expertise plays a far greater role in our lives and especially in the socialization of the young? Yeah, and I think there's two elements to that. I mean, the one thing is that we're dispossessing young people of their cultural heritage. You see, I'm not arguing that people need to uncritically simply accept what the teacher tells them or what the values of the past were. I mean, I'm, I kicked up and rebelled against many of the old ways of doing things. Mm. But being able to kick up against the old ways of doing things is actually a creative process. But if you're not even familiarized with these kinds of values, then you've got nothing to kick up against. And that undermines their development as strong individuals who are being educated to be independent. But what it also does is it dispossesses young people of the values that have made their society into what it is and which they need uh, in order to make their way in the world. They don't have to just simply accept all of it, but it's part of who they are. And then secondly, and this is just as important, having been dispossessed of this moral outlook, this tradition into which, which has been created in their society, they are then left at the mercy of the experts mm. who have this role to tell them, you know, sort of how to move forward and who basically become the uh, pedagogic equivalent to all the people that are continually telling us to follow the science, yeah. right? Don't follow your instincts, follow yeah. the science. As we know, following the science is just a technocratic way of saying, follow what we say and do as we think. And ultimately, don't think for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So just bringing us forward a little bit for a moment, you say that things have gone so far that today the culture war starts in the nursery. So you think it's in terms of the moral engineering project, which has uh, been around for a long time and, and transformed in different ways over the decades, you think it's now so intense that it begins that early. You know, the process is not simply uh, restricted anymore to adolescents, but it goes right through to three, four, five-year-olds in the nursery. Yeah, I mean, you, you ha- already have psychological intervention mm. with two, three-year-old children. The American Psychology Association was saying that it's perfectly okay to give kids who are four Ritalin in, because it's a way of making sure that they uh, become emotionally stable later on. So uh, a lot of interesting things are going on. We have a situation where four-year-old children are told that uh, if they want to play doctors and nurses in the way that you did in my day, that's peer abuse. Yeah, They're given a, a, an orientation about sex, which is quite unique and quite distinct, but which speaks to the moral values of the moral engineers. So they're told to use certain kinds of language. And it's interesting how powerful that could be. Just to give you an example that happened to me today, because I have a leak in my in my pipe. So a, a young plumber comes out, a local boat, local guy, he's 22 years old, went to the school around here, and he's very proud of the fact they got an apprenticeship. Uh, and then he uh, tells me that, so I said, well, well, why did you have your apprenticeship? 
And he says, well, I, had, I was working in London. And he continues, it was really great. And I said, why was it really great in London? Oh, he said, you meet a lot of diverse people. That was the first thing that he said. So the language of diversity was something that he, as a plumber, felt that he had to <laughs> wear on his sleeve. Mm. He talked about the kind of multicultural, you know, sort of uh, way of life and, that you, you know, different kinds of people. And it really did sound like a sociology gra- graduate from a, a second-rate university. It was a wonderful plumber. You know, he fixed my, my leak really well. And he was probably a great guy as well. But what, I, what I thought was very, very interesting is that even he, who's so out of that kind of cultural network that kind of promotes these ideas, even he has picked these ideas up in schools and in the nursery. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like checking in your baggage at the airport without locking your suitcase. You think your stuff's going to be kept private, but you never know who's going to end up rifling through your unmentionables. If you go online without a VPN or virtual private network, your internet service provider can see every single website you visit. And that's even if you use private browsing or incognito mode. Worse still, they can legally sell this information without your consent to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you. If you really want to keep your internet browsing private, you have to try ExpressVPN. When you use ExpressVPN, your identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server, and so it can't be seen by your internet service provider or anyone else. Your data also gets encrypted to give you maximum protection. ExpressVPN is really easy to use. You just fire up the app and click one button. It also works on all devices, phones, laptops, even routers, so everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. As well as all that extra protection, what's best about ExpressVPN for me is that it allows you to pretend to be in another country. That means you can access all kinds of hidden content. You'll never have to encounter a website that you're blocked from because of European data laws or a video you can't watch because it can't be shown in your country. ExpressVPN gets around all of that. So secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash Brendan today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Brendan. And with that special URL, you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Brendan. In relation to the socialization or the moral engineering, even of very young children, I think a very good example of that was at that school in Birmingham a couple of years ago where very young kids were being taught an LGBT form of education, uh, a form of sexual education, which emphasized gender fluidity and gay lifestyles and so on. And some of the Muslim parents were not happy about this at all and complained and had some protests. And what I thought was very striking about that is that the school got the young kids to make pro-LGBT posters and images and they put them on the school gates almost as a provocation against the parents at the school gates and you had this extraordinary and quite explicit use of the children and use of these socially engineered children to send a message to the adults and that as I was reading your book that came to mind because you also talk in your book about how 
in the current moment, not only is it the targeting of children that's taken place by social engineers and moral entrepreneurs and others, in, especially in the education system, but there is now an effort to re-engineer adults and to, to focus not just on adolescents, but on adults through policies like nudge and other uh, forms of behavioral science. How problematic do you think that's become in terms of um, the devotion of these moral engineering resources now to ostensibly autonomous adults to try and transform the way we think and the way we behave? I think it's very important because uh, in many respects, what has happened is that influencing and re-socializing or re-educating adults is uh, a very flourishing industry at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's got very important political implications and that are very seldom realized because basically if you are in a position where you hold the levers of cultural power and you're able to use this power in, at, at the place of work or in universities or in schools or in the public sector, then what you're doing is you're almost subliminally promoting a, a set of ideas that present themselves as the conventional truth. And it's not something that many adults are able to kick back against. And certainly they're not able to kick back against at their place of work. So, you know, when you have a situation uh, as you have in the Bank of America, which is as, uh, you know, you know, this is the Bank of America, one of the most capitalist of capitalist institutions, where you essentially got a two-week training program on the question of your whiteness, on the question of how you should, what kind of racial etiquette you should adopt, how you should behave, how you should give way and, and make your position redundant so other people can fill, fill that. Even if you're against it, it's not really possible for you to argue back against it. So what you end up doing uh, is you self-censor. And I think there are millions and millions of adults who've been exposed to these kinds of different programs. It's just self-censor. But the trouble is, uh, and this is something that people like ourselves really need to understand and work out a way of struggling against, is that once you begin to self-censor, it becomes something you internalize. Yeah. Slowly but surely, you begin to use a language that was originally alien to you, but you now say it almost inadvertently. And after a couple of years, you know, you don't worry about being uh, saying it inadvertently. It becomes who you really are. It becomes you. So I think in that sense, some of these re-education programs are much more successful than the kind of re-education programs that the, that the Maoist Chinese used to put young people through because that was far too unsubtle. This is a much more subtle uh, pro cultural process that often goes by unnoticed. So uh, on that very question, I wanted to talk to you about one of the great contradictions or, or one of the seeming contradictions in this process that we're talking about. So on the one hand, it can often appear as if we live in an anything-goes society, and conservative critics of the contemporary moment will often use that phrase, anything-goes, they do anything they want, it's all out of control. You can pick your own gender, you can dye your hair any colour, you can wear clothes that people a 100 years ago would have fainted in the streets if they saw you. So on the surface of things, it can appear that we live in a society that is one full of choice, as we were saying earlier on. But that coexists with new forms of technocratic governments, new forms of scientism, new forms of control. And in fact, you talk in the book about how one of the interesting things about the time we live in is that 
politics can appear both incredibly personal and also deeply impersonal. So on the one hand, the politics of identity has transformed the personal into something political, and it's all about the self, and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. But at the same time, there is an increasingly technocratic form of governance where ministers will say, I'm following the science, I'm listening to the experts, don't say these things that you're not supposed to say, whether it's about COVID-19 or climate change or whatever else it might be. So do you think those, do you see those two things as being closely linked, where on the one hand, people are freed, in, I'm using quote marks, air quote marks, they're freed from the traditions of the past, but as a process, they're dragged into a period in which they feel more lost and new forms of control are brought in to direct people and control people. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the uh, earliest manifestation of this process begins in the school, where mm. you have the introduction of what some people call invisible pedagogy. And what invisible pedagogy is really all about is it creates the impression that the children, it's child-centered. So the children are meant to be able to explore themselves, they can explore their bodies, they can do this and that. But actually, you know, sort of children are subjected to these uh, sort of subliminal messages that this is the way to behave. And therefore, the control occurs by being very implicit, but at the same time, being quite ruthless in what you can and what you cannot do. And I think we have the same thing now in relation to adulthood, where most forms of control are not explicit, they're not direct. I mean, nudge, for example, is a very good example. It's very much an indirect form of control. But there's also other ways in which people are essentially told that you cannot do this, not really possible to do this. And the way you do it is by the use of language that is necessarily and consciously opaque. Mm. So if you misbehave, Brendan, I'm not going to say that Brendan is bad. Mm. I'm going to say you've been in, it's been inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, and you know what inappropriate means. Mm. I know what it means. It means something very different than, you know, sort of the way it kind of comes across. Mm. It's got that kind of cursive element to it. And words yeah. like inappropriate, being uncomfortable, problematic, all these words are very much controlling devices. And the reason they're controlling devices is because they're being put forward by an elite that is that is no less convinced about its own truth than the Catholic Church in medieval Europe or the Maoist leadership in, in before the Great Leap in China in 1958. So I want to uh, touch upon, as we come to a close, I want to touch upon how how we describe the current period we're living in. Because one of the frustrating things, I mean, you just used the word opaque there, and it's not only language that is opaque, but politics can feel like that too. Things can feel very amorphous. People who assert control will often deny that they are doing that, and people who are being coercive will often claim that they are actually encouraging kids and young people to explore their identity. So there's a lot of confusion. There's a, lot of, there's a lack of clarity and you refer to the ideology without a name to talk about the current processes that you describe in the book and which we've just been discussing. And I think that's very true. And there is a search for a name for this stuff. I mean, 
people use the term wokeness, the politics of wokeness. I use that all the time. Uh, people talk about cancel culture. Uh, people talk about the new elites. And it never feels very satisfactory, firstly, because people will simply deny that these things exist. I'm not an elite. I'm just trying to help you. Cancel culture is a myth. Wokeness is either a positive thing or doesn't exist at all. So it's, it can feel very difficult to get a handle on this. So is that why you dis- describe it as an ideology without a name? And putting you on the spot a little bit, if, if you were to give this ideology a name, what kind of thing would you describe it as? I mean, probably the, 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 the best attempt to give it a name was the attempt to call it successor ideology. But I think that's very ugly and it mm. doesn't really uh, help very much. But I, I can understand what people get it when they use that term. The, the reason why I use the term ideology without a name is because it's an ideology that's still becoming. Mm. And because the people themselves who express this are themselves pretty unclear what it is they're saying some of the time. But there are certain things that we do know. We know, for example, that if there is a meeting or a dinner party at which you have the head of Netflix, the head of Apple, the head of Bank of America, the head of Goldman Sachs, you know, uh, um, any of the big companies, along with people in the media, they will know that when something happens, they will react pretty much in the same way. You know, they will know, for example, that when you know you have a situation where, for some reason or another, an incel goes berserk and commits a crime, they will spontaneously call that right-wing terrorism. And they will spontaneously say, as they look at each other at the dinner table, that right-wing terrorism is a bigger problem than yeah. jihadism. Mm-hmm. There are certain things that you know they know and they say. You know, it, it's these bon mots uh, are mm-hmm. part of what they have, and it, and what they've got is a uh, what what used to be called a less free the core, where they kind of uh, have developed a, a way of an outlook that is that is very common to them. But the the way that this expresses itself. And I think it's, it was my most interesting discovery for myself. I'm sure that other people were fully aware of it. Is that the, the way you know when the ideology without a name comes alive, when it really kicks in, is when one of these guys or, or an educator at a university or a, or a commentator in the media says, you know, we need to raise their awareness. Yeah. <laughs> the word awareness is really critical here. Because when they say, we need to raise your awareness, it, it sounds like a lovely thing. I'm going to make you conscious. I'm going to help you out. When you say, I'm here to raise your awareness, what you're saying is, I'm going to make sure that you think the way that I do. Yeah. At the moment, you don't. But the only option that's open to all of you is to accept my outlook on the world. And that kind of uh, gentle, nice way of putting it is it, actually just as coercive as when you go to a re-educated camp in Sichuan during the Mao period, it's the same kind of thing. But the way they say, oh, and they have little ribbons about raising awareness, they have badges <laughs> about raising your awareness, it all sounds very cool and lovely. But what it does, it kind of works towards the same purpose, mm. whereby a section of society is determined to monopolize the cultural outlook on the world and to ram it down our throats. And that's mm. really is what I'm describing here when I talk about an ideology of name. But know that in a few years, uh, you and I or somebody who's more intelligent than I am will come up with a, a really good name because by that time, this will be much clearer 
as to what form it takes. Yeah, the, the term raising awareness always gets my heckles up because it's so different to engaging someone in debate. It means almost the opposite of that because the, there's the presumption that the person who must do the awareness raising already knows what has to be said and thought. And all, all that re- remains to do is that he or she must raise you to that level. So there's that instant presumption of having to rescue you from your own ignorance and give you the right way of thinking. Um, I want to touch on a couple more things before we end. Um, the first thing is I just want to say something about the Enlightenment, because you will know, and you, in fact you touch upon this in the book, that some of the, some of the criticisms that are made of the technocratic nature of our period or the reliance on the authority of scientism for public policy or socialization, some of the criticisms of that process will often locate the origins of this in the Enlightenment, in those kind of Promethean ambitions, the taking command of nature, the worship of progress, the worship of reason. And there's often a line is often traced from that moment towards the kind of dull bureaucratic world we currently find ourselves in but you would obviously make a distinction between those two things i mean scientific reason is one thing and moral reason is one thing they are good things that it was worth humanity fighting for and understanding but scientism is something very different isn't it i think so i mean i i think it's unfortunate that there is such a historical ignorance about what the enlightenment was mm. it's often called an enlightenment project as if there was this one unitary enlightenment, whereas what you had was a movement that was composed of many people who were arguing bitterly against each other, you know, who were involved in a very creative, transformative debate all along the way. And many of the uh, negative qualities that are attached to the Enlightenment are really not the Enlightenment, but, but the way the Enlightenment uh, became degraded by individuals kind of later on. And it seems to me that it is unfortunate that people make this kind of connection. They don't understand that the creative innovations of scientific thought, this kind of uh, commitment to the freedom of exploration and freedom of experimentation, are really very, very positive, and they completely contradict the attempt to you know, subordinate that to this social engineering, technocratic you know, sort of form. The idea of inevitable progress is not part of the Enlightenment. Yeah. Right? It's important to realize the idea of inevitable progress is a very fatalistic way of looking at the future, contradicts the very spirit of the Enlightenment, yeah. because the very spirit of the Enlightenment is about doubt, it's about skepticism, it's about questioning things. So I think that a little bit of historical you know, sort of uh, understanding would, would probably help a lot of people understand that the phenomenon that you and I have been discussing is no more connected to the Enlightenment than it is to Buddhism thought, right? I mean, yeah. there's absolutely, it's one of those things that unfor- is very unfortunate, but it shows historical ignorance to draw that kind of conclusion. Okay, and then my final question is about, I guess it's too broad a question to answer in a couple of minutes, but let's give it a whirl. It, it's about bringing it back to the crisis of identity and identity politics and people's often desperate, misfired search for an identity in, in the contemporary period. One thing that I keep thinking is how different this is to Socrates' cry of know thyself. So know thyself is the kind of 
beginnings of philosophy in many ways, and it has infused so much philosophical thought over the centuries. And when you think about how different know thyself is from find thyself, which is the contemporary view, you know, your identity is out there pre-existing and you have to go and find it or invent thyself, which seems even worse, where you have you have this kind of chart of identities and a, a long ruler with different genders and you kind of pick and choose them and, and create this kind of shaky house of identity that you then live in. So those are very different things, aren't they? And, and, and I think that's one of the real crises of our time, which is the the lack of, even though there is a great amount of self-regard and an encouragement of self-reflection and an encouragement of self-obsession to the end of magicking up your own identity, it runs counter to the old great goal of self-knowledge, which was built far more on the idea that you were an important person, part of an important society, and knowledge of the self was a great basis on which to live your life. Yeah, I think that what you have is, is a situation where uh, Greek society, particularly in Athens, expected people to be able to reflect, you know, to understand their motives, to understand uh, who they were, you know, to be aware of their strengths and weaknesses. If for no other reasons, then because human flourishing requires that you understand your character and your, and your own virtues. And I think it's very important to realize that the Greek ideal of knowing thyself is very much linked to a very active culture mm-hmm. where the Greeks weren't just simply sitting around <laughs> looking at their shoelaces, contemplating the world. They were one of the most active nations up to that moment and maybe even after that. I mean, you have to remember that little Athens you know, went out and took risks. I mean, risk-taking was very much a Greek accomplishment where you went out and you traded with the rest of the world. The Greeks were criticized because they were continually looking for new ideas, bringing them back from all the places that they traveled to. So part of knowing thyself, by yourself, was, was involved and related to knowing the world. Yeah, You get that in Aristotle, you know, in a very eloquent kind of a way where he's looking at the world and it's tried to develop a systematic way of understanding it. And to me, the idea of knowing thyself and uh, understanding the world is ultimately linked to something really, really important, which is not always spelled out by the Greeks, but will be spelled out later on, is that the way you really learn to know thyself, yourself, is by understanding the world a little bit more than you did yesterday. And that's the key for really gaining that kind of sense of uh, independence, understanding and participating in that human flourishing that Aristotle talked about. Frank Friday, thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. 
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.